Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Zainab, Zainab Kaya. I'm based at the Middle East Center. I'm a research fellow there. And um, thank you for coming today uh, to our event on Kurdish Women Fighters, A Path Out of Patriarchy? Question um, mark. We have an esteemed scholar with us, um, Gunesh Murat Tezger, also a very good friend. So I'm delighted to have him here uh, and host him uh, at the LSE today. Um, so I will introduce him briefly, and then I will let the floor, leave the floor to him. Um, and he will talk for about 40 minutes, and then we will open uh, this session to question and answers. Um, uh, before I start, just to let you know, the um, talk <coughs> is being recorded. Um, so please silence your phones. Um, and um, and the, if you would like to tweet about the event, uh, you can. The hashtag is uh, hashtag LSEPKK. Um, and I'll just quickly introduce you to, to Gunesh. Uh, it's, it's a long list, right? So I'm going to try to keep it as concise as possible. So Gunesh Murat Tezjur is the uh, Jalal Talabani Chair and the Director of the Kurdish Political Studies Program uh, in, at the University, Central, uh, University of Central Florida. And this is the only such entity in the U.S., actually. So it, um, his research focuses on political violence, social movements, and the geopolitics of the Middle East with a focus on Kurdish uh, question. He is also the author of Muslim Reformers in Iran and Turkey, The Paradox of Moderation, uh, published by the University of Texas Press in 2010. Um, Gunesh conducts his uh, research in multiple languages, Kurdish, uh, Persian, and Turkish. Um, and his research is funded by multiple resources, by the NSF, by Harry Frank Guggenheim and U.S. Peace Institute. And currently, uh, his research is focusing on, he's conducting a research on the Yazidis uh, and the social transformation uh, within the Yazidi committee and, all, uh, com uh, committee and their relations with other uh, communities um, in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, as well as the transformation of gender relations after the genocide and the trauma. Um, and he widely publishes on the PKK and the Kurdish question. Um, so without further ado, over to you, Gnesh. Um, so well if I speak this. like this, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So thank you very much, Zeynep, for uh, basically inviting me and for the introduction. And I'd like to also thank uh, Sandra for basically organizing everything. Uh, so I mean, it always like feels a bit like interesting to come from Florida to London. Uh, it's like maybe like 20, 70 degrees in Orlando, and I still basically miss this kind of weather because I used to live in the Midwest for a long time. So I still kind of a part of this transplants in Florida, which is not very okay with the weather, especially not in the winter, uh, especially not in the summertime. Uh, okay, uh, so just to give you some background to my research, I have been working on the PKK from a more bottom-up perspective. Focusing on the militants more than anything else, maybe for the last eight or nine years. And the driving question for my research is that why do many Kurds, sometimes not only Kurds, but in most cases Kurds, basically risk their lives and join this armed movement? Because if you look at basically PKK, uh, your chance of survival are typically very low. I mean, I will show you some data, but basically, uh, if you join the PKK, you may actually get killed after five years on average. And if you think about that, many people who are in their late teens or early twenties, they join this organization knowing that it's also public knowledge that they can actually lose their life very uh, easily. 
And we are talking about at least four decades of mobilization, starting from late 1970s until basically nowadays, which still goes on. And nowadays, obviously, when we talk about the PKK, it is more like a transnational organization. I mean, if you think about the Pajak in Iran, the PYD in, um, in Syria, their camps in Iraqi Kurdistan, and also obviously the diaspora. I mean, it's basically kind of a very successful, resilient movement, which has been surviving for more than four decades. I mean, this is a question I've come up with some answers, which was already published in different places so far. But not, I mean, today I will talk about something much more specific, because uh, if you look at the PKK, you also realize that it is the paradigmatic case of women in arms. I mean, there are other organizations, like if you think about the FMLN in El Salvador, FARC in Colombia, you can talk about the Maoist groups in Nepal, uh, and some other groups. But ultimately, the PKK, especially nowadays, especially after what happened uh, in fall of 2014 with the siege of Kobani, the Kurdish woman with arms became this image of woman fighting for insurgency. And in this sense, it is basically very interesting to understand, I mean, if the women who are joining the PKK have some motivations that set them apart from the males. And even more specifically, I would like to actually understand if the gender inequality, it's always a very kind of a complicated concept, and I will basically come up with some different dimensions, if it really affects how and why women join the PKK. And also, I mean, related question is that, more kind of an empirical question, that how come PKK managed to mobilize so many women, uh, I will say, since late 80s. I mean, PKK was established again in the late 1970s, but then the, the participation of women in large numbers to PKK only started in the late 80s, as I will show you uh, in a second. So these are the questions I basically address in uh, this search. And <laughs> so I have my own, like, the point to the, the other one. On the side. So, this one. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay uh, and my perspective is uh, informed by the social intersectionality in the sense that if you think about like the people who are joining the PKK, I mean one obvious way to look at it is basically just focusing on their ethnicity. I mean they are Kurds, they are repressed by the Turkish government for a long time. So in a sense you can make the argument that like many other cases where ethnic minorities are repressed by the dominant ethnic majority controlling the state, like people have a strong incentive to join like a uh, rebellion. But at the same time, uh, if you look from a more comprehensive perspective, then you also need to think about like, the gender identity. And it will become very important, mainly because gender has been also very central to how PKK tried to mobilize women, again, starting with the early 1990s, but also the class. Because when we talk about the Kurdish society, I mean, many people sometimes homogenize the society, but at the same time, Kurdish society has been very kind of a stratified society for a long time. And especially when you look at the origins of the PKK, it is hard to understand how they managed to mobilize so many people without basically looking at how they also address the social question. And the social question, I mean, is that land inequalities, class inequalities, and how they basically try to basically mobilize ruler peasants, or uh, I would say maybe like the Lumpen proletariat, who were basically working in the uh, kind of the urban uh, Kurdish or Turkish cities in different parts of Turkey, or even like maybe in, in Libya, in Saudi Arabia, or in uh, European diaspora, starting with the 1990s. So this basically kind of like informed how I look at this uh, uh, case. And so this is basically my main argument, which looks very straightforward and I think very, uh, I will say maybe like a simple argument. So the argument is that the women embedded in unequal social relations, which are characterized by let's say patriarchy, and maybe in the classical sense you can define patriarchy as a system in which men dominate, oppress, and exploit women. So this is like maybe a classical definition of patriarchy, and then. I think the Kurdish society, especially in the 70s and 80s and 1990s, 
basically fit to this definition in many ways. Uh, so these women who are embedded in these kind of relations are more likely to join an armed insurgency which develops a narrative of gendered quality action. But then I will basically add a complication which will basically make the argument more nuanced. And the nuance is that it is one thing to say that an insurgency, it can be a leftist insurgency, it can be ethnic insurgency, in the case of PKP it is obviously both, that they developed the, the, the gender narrative. But the complication is that they also need to make sure that this gender narrative is not going to result in some kind of a social backlash. And what I mean by social backlash is that but if you think about the Kurdish society, as I mentioned earlier, it has been very conservative. It has been transformed a lot, uh, partially because of the war situation uh, in the last couple of decades. But still, I mean, if you look at many different indicators, you can still identify the Kurdish society in different parts of Kurdistan as being highly uh, like a conservative or traditional. So the question is that if there's an insurgency, the PKK obviously, talks about gender emancipation, woman emancipation, focusing on the, in quotation marks, the woman question, then how come it also managed to not result in lots of tensions with the more traditional elements of the society? I mean, without addressing this question, it is not very easy to understand how they managed to result in this huge mobilization. And my short answer, I mean, which I will basically come back in the end of my talk, is that, that on the one hand, PKK talks about women's emancipation, which basically talks about, obviously, a certain notion of gender equality. It basically opens up many different ways for Kurdish women to become much more active in politics which basically help them to develop a certain sense of political agency. But at the same time, there's a compromise. And the compromise is that it also needs to make certain kind of uh, negotiations, certain kind of concessions to the traditional society so that it basically prevents the backlash. And I will give you some empirical examples about what I mean by this kind of a backlash and what kind of compromises PKK has made in the last maybe three or four decades uh, to kind of negotiate this uh, situation. So how I basically approach my, uh, this question, I basically do two different kind of things. So it is a typical mathematical research. The first one is my large, uh, what I call the Kurdish insurgency in Milton's data set. And most of this data set actually is public. So I mean, you can actually look at the data set by yourself. There's only one part, I don't make it public yet, which is basically the gender dimension because, well, I am still writing this paper. But if you go to this website, it, it opens very quickly. And it does, I guess. And I can show you very quickly. Maybe somebody is censoring my website, but yeah, mm. let me just try. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, so this is just my personal website, but there's this like data visualization, if you just go here. And I mean, especially if you are working on this topic, it can be interesting for your own purpose. I mean, there are like many different things you can do, but I will just show you the simplest one. For example, if you go to this one, the map option, and maybe this is not the best browser for this because it also depends on the browser. I can go to, uh, let me just go to Google Chrome very quickly, if it opens up, because I think the, this is a kind of, a, Explorer is not always reliable for this kind of data sets. And sorry for it, it just takes a while. Okay, yeah, and then let's say, okay, so let's say, I mean, for example, this simply shows you the location of the Miltons in my data set, like in terms of the provinces. And it's not, not about Turkey, it's all about like, 
Iran, uh, Syria, Syria, and then Iraq. But I mean, you can basically look at many different things. Let's say you can look at like simple uh, bar graph, and then you can look at, for example, the like let's say recruitment periods. So it basically gives you the different recruitment periods for these people. So I mean, what I say is that this is like the basis of the the analysis that I will show you in uh, some minutes. Um, yeah, and it's basically public. I mean, everyone can actually look at this like website and uh, maybe get some information for different purposes. So let me go back to the presentation. Okay. Uh, and I mean, how I collected this data set, it took me a while, as you can imagine. Uh, it has more than 9,000 meters at the moment. I will say PKK probably had between 40 to 50,000 recruits since late 1970s, and not including PYD and PEJAC. And if you think about the number, uh, Probably they have a fatality rate of 23 to 24,000. And I'm not even including the people who were killed in the cities, the urban warfare in 2015 and 2016. So basically, this data set represents around 40% of the old PKK fatalities starting from late 1970s until the end of 2016. So this is basically the range. Uh, I mean, there came some issues with the bias because I obviously look at the open sources. Many of them being PKK's own publications. Um, they used to pu like publish obituaries or biographies of militants in their magazines like Sarabun or Benhudan for a long time. More recently, they published things uh, in their own websites. So I mean, this is how I, I compile this information. Uh, and then if you look at data sets, there are basically uh, 1,384 females and then more than or almost like 8,000 male fighters in the data sets. Um, it's interesting because when you look at like some of the sources uh, which claim that the women make around maybe 30 to 40 percent of the fighters in PKK, but if you look at the data set, the numbers are much lower than that. And then how can I explain this discrepancy? Well, probably the lowers are the numbers are actually lower than what people claim in terms of 30 to 40 percent. But at the same time, keep in mind that at least for a long time, the female fighters were not always the ones who were in the forefront. They were not always in the battles, so they were more like campers. They spent more time in the camps and they were doing some other jobs. So there is a likelihood that the women may have a lower chance of getting killed than the males, which basically means that they are also less likely to be represented in the data sets. Mm -hmm. So this will give you around like 16 persons, I will say, more or less, but then the actual number came like 20 to 25 persons. But still, I have not seen any evidence showing that PKK's numbers are around like 30 to 40 persons, as sometimes some PKK commanders claim. I mean, it may be changing because when you look at the recent time period, it is increasing the number of the ratio of women, especially, uh, I will say, since the 2005 or so. But that's still, I mean, 30-40% still looks like a little bit like inflated to me. I have some also data set about the uh, YPG people, like the PYD people, uh, the Turks or the Kurds from Turkey joining the PYD, and the ratio is basically around like 21 22%. Which is higher than this number, but still much lower than 30 to 40 percent. Sometimes you basically see in the literature, just as a kind of side note. So, and what about like the more qualitative aspects of my research design? So, it is mostly composed of what I call the stories. And I did field work in different parts of my career, but the most intensive part was in late 2012, uh, mostly in Turkey, in both Kurdish cities and then also in Istanbul. I talked to lots of families whose relatives joined the insurgents and lost their lives. I mean, there are some methodological issues of why I specifically try to talk to relatives of the dead people. That because I realize that it is, first of all, much easier to get information about the dead people than 
a lot of people, and I can explain why later on. But also, I mean, for security reasons. And unfortunately, I mean, if anybody wants to do the same research in Turkey, uh, it's not very feasible for obvious reasons. So, uh, but I mean, you can still talk to people like through some maybe bad channels nowadays. I mean, sometimes like electronically. And I also basically rely on lots of different interviews conducted by others. Some of them are books. Some of them are basically more kind of journal articles. And they come in different languages. I mean, I can read Kurmanchi, Turkish, and Persian to a certain extent. So I basically look at these sources to basically identify different life stories about women who have joined the PKK in the last, uh, basically in the last three decades or so. So these are basically the base of my uh, research. Okay, I mean, so my first argument, and it will come back to my original point, when you look at Turkey, uh, the gender inequality in Turkey is highly ethnicized. In the sense that you basically see higher levels of gender inequality, however you want to measure it, in more church areas than the rest of the country. And this basically only shows you two different dimensions. The first one is basically teenager mothers in 2010, the percentage. So uh, these are just percentages from 3 to 70 percent. And if you look at the, it's not very clear here, but if you look at basically the province in uh, darker circles, they have a higher percentage of Kurdish population. And not surprisingly, if you look at especially this area, except for Dersim, which is basically very different for different reasons, uh, they tend to have a higher average of teenager mothers, which is maybe one of the most classical aspect of gender inequality in the sense that you get married as a young woman and then your main role in the society is basically motherhood. You basically give birth to lots of uh, children and you basically cultivate them and that is basically how your social identity is constructed. And then if you look at the other one, it's basically the average age for marriage, uh, which is not the percentages obviously. And again, if you look at that, most of the Kurdish provinces tend to have not only a higher percentage of teenage, teenage mothers, but they also have a higher uh, number of women who basically get married at an early age. And these numbers are from 2010. But my data set covers like 1990s, and I will basically tell you that the numbers actually look even much higher uh, in the 1990s. I mean, this is, this is some kind of transformation always taking place. And probably if you look at the same numbers nowadays, in 2017, the numbers will basically look lower, uh, any kind of improvement. But still, I mean, I'm talking about like three or four decades, obviously. So, uh, I mean, so the, the whole point is that when you think about like the, the, the Kurdish woman, and the, the numbers will not look very different in Iran or in Syria. I mean, I don't have this, that kind of system of data, but based on my reading of the literature and maybe by own knowledge, I, mean, I will basically say that the Kurdish regions in Syria and Iran have basically similar characteristics overall. I mean, I mean you can make the argument in Balochistan in Iran, maybe, yeah, they have a higher levels of uh, patriarchy, but I mean, still the Kurdish regions of Iran on average, tend to have higher levels of gender inequality than other parts of Iran. So, and I, I mean, there have been lots of stories, for example, like women self-immolating, uh, because the idea is that uh, if you're a young woman without much education opportunities, and especially if you are living in small towns or rural areas, well, then your life cho choices are highly constrained, because in most cases, you are expected to marry at a very early age, and then you don't always choose your partner. And in some cases, people become desperate, and they basically commit suicide. And this has been like a lot, lot, lots of different stories, like in Turkey, uh, especially in the early 2000s, but also in like in Iran, for example, like among Kurdish women, like the South immolations. So I mean, there's clearly a pattern there. So this basically goes back to my own data set. So it shows you the birth locations of PKK women, and the map will not be very, look very different if you look at the map of the PKK people in general. So, um, and I mean, not surprisingly, this is like the hardcore of the Botan area, which is like the hardcore of PKK. Uh, it doesn't show the mountains, but I will basically tell you that it's more like an arc here. 
And these are like the mountains areas of Diyarbakir and then Dersim area. And then you always see places like Mardin, which is like a plain, but then again, it's like high support for the insurgency. But I mean, these are like where the most Kurdish women who end up joining the PKK uh, come from. This is basically their work locations. Um, and if you look at like the, the numbers, I have, uh, I have more than a thousand people from Turkey, and there's still basically uh, like a meaningful number of uh, Kurdish women fighters from Syria, Iran, and Iraq. So, just to give you a kind of overall sense of my uh, data set. Okay, um, this is basically one of the maybe most interesting findings I have. I mean, I have more, I would say, more sophisticated static analysis, and I have been working on this paper for a long time, and at some point you basically realize that you, statistics can be, help you to a certain extent, but I also think that sometimes simple graphs without much kind of p-values or the stars can actually be much more uh, explanatory. And I mean, I have a paper with a kind of appendix, and in the appendix I basically do all this kind of a different uh, statistical analysis with robustness sense and so on. But I mean, I feel that even like simple graphs actually tell the story much successful than more kind of sophisticated analysis at the more kind of district level. But I mean, if you have questions about that, I can obviously uh, answer them. Gladly. So, okay, this basic graphs will show you two different things. So, this is basically persons of women in the PKK ranks. And then, if you look at the blue and then the, I will say, maybe brown color, the blue is the recruitment percentages, the brown is the death percentages. Which basically means that if you look at the pre 1984 period, and in 1984 is like a kind of a threshold because this is when the PKK actually starts attacks against the Turkish state, but that PKK has been in existence since like late 1970s basically mobilized several thousand people at least before 1980 coup d'etat. Uh, I mean, there were, not many there were not many women in the ranks. Basically, it was a more kind of male-dominated business when you think about the PKK. And which is maybe not surprising because if you think about all the organizations which were active in Turkey and maybe in other parts of the Kurdistan, I mean, yeah, you basically see a similar trend in the sense that they were all male, like a kind of a movements. And then the situation has not really changed in the early 80s or late 80s, I mean again, if you look at it, it's still uh, less than 10%, but then the real change took place basically in the early 1990s. So I, I mean, I can show you many different pieces of evidence, but ultimately it is clear to me that only starting in the late 80s and early 1990s, you see a large number of women joining PKK. And it's a kind of important thing, which basically links to my main argument, because then how can you explain it? How can you explain the gap between this period and this period? This kind of a, uh, I mean, this is a little bit like misleading because during this time, PKK has not been really fighting against the Turkish army, so the recruitment was more limited. But then if you kind of ignore it for a while, I mean, you basically see a clear kind of a linear increase in number of people, women, who are joining the PKK. So PKK's women cadres became much more powerful and important only after the 1990s. And this also kind of gives you the figure like, okay, like 16% recruitment during this period, and then suddenly you basically see many more women basically getting killed in the PKK ranks. Which is not surprising because you don't have many people getting killed here because not many women join in the early periods. So if you think that on average it takes five people, and excuse my language, before people get killed in the PKK ranks, it's not surprising that you basically see the 16 percent, which then become like 19 percent that in the next five year, years. And this was a time, like in the late 1990s, when you look at the memoirs, when you look at like the PKK commanders, their basic description, it was a time when the women were really active fighting against the Turkish army. The iconic figures like the Beritan, who basically committed suicides, or at least according to legends, not to be captured by the KDP forces in 1992, but she's from this area. But then like Zilan, I think many of you maybe at least heard about this woman who 
become suicide bomber in Dersim in 1996, uh, killed uh, several number of soldiers, and maybe, maybe the most iconic figure in the all PKK narrative, obviously joined the ranks like, during this period, and then lost her life like basically uh, in 1996. But then you don't basically see iconic women figures in the early periods of the PKK, which I find interesting. So then the next question becomes, how can I ex ex actually explain that? I mean, what really tells us this temporal change? So this is basically my explanation. But the first thing is that if you look at the early 1990s, which is maybe similar to FARC, um, when I look at the secondary literature on the FARC, I see a similar pattern. Now this was a time when the PKK became more kind of a, what they call the a People's Liberation Army. Because you basically see many more people join the ranks, they become more willing, and it kind of almost overwhelmed PK, PKK's ability to recruit them. But then in the 80s, PKK was maybe, again, like a bunch of guys like staging attacks against Turkish armed outposts without much coordination. But when you come to the 1990s, and especially 1992, you basically see like thousands of militants in the mountains, and they become much more active, and they basically like staging coordinated attacks almost every single day. And well, then you basically think about that, then it makes sense because if there's a huge expansion in the number of the PKK militants, then they also need more recruits, and they make a more serious attempt to basically recruit the half of the society, which is obviously composed of women. But they didn't have the same need before the 1990s because they were kind of a much smaller organization. But maybe more important than that, when you look at the PKK's gender narrative, what I call the gender narrative, then you only see the focus on the women's emancipation after 1987. And then if you think about the Abdul Ajilans, like all this like, highly influential works on the woman family, they did not exist before the late 80s and early 1990s. And if you look at, and I did some systematic reading of their magazine, the Sarabun, that then there was not much focus on the woman's question in this magazine, at least until 1987. But only starting in 87, and then maybe more in 1988 and 89, you basically see a much kind of a strong focus on the women's role in the Kurdish society and how can actually our nation's liberation can help the women's liberation. And then, I mean, I just want to summarize that argument, basically it's argument, uh, because he's a person who kind of developed this kind of narrative more than anybody else. His argument is that, that the woman's body is central to how the honor is defined in the Kurdish society. It's basically about all the women's sexuality. So you have to restrain women's behavior because if the woman is not restrained, then it can basically violate the, like the traditional sense of honor and then it can result in lots of basically uh, social problems. So, Öcalan basically thought that rather than directly attacking this notion of honor, it is important to reconfigure it in a sense to link it to the notion of national liberation, because his argument is that, I think it's kind of influenced by Fanon. As far as I can tell, he never quotes Fanon, but I can see some similarities, and the similarity is that if you look at Fanon, Fanon always says that if you're an Algerian man, you basically kind of like beat your wife, but because you have all these kind of tensions in you because of the colonial situation. You can't rebel against the colonial authorities, and then you basically take your revenge from your, basically, people who are subordinate to you. And this is kind of arguments, I and mean, obviously you can basically, may not think it's kind of very accurate, but anyway. And if you look at the Ojalan's discourse, you basically some similarities, because his perception is that the Kurdish society has a strong misconception of this notion of honor. More than anything else, in the primary analysis, it's all about the nation liberation. You cannot talk about the honor society unless you basically achieve national liberation. And his idea is that, well, then women should also become publicly active. <coughs> they should join the insurgency. They should become activists because their activism will contribute to social honor in the sense of national liberation. So it kind of makes the connection between the women's emancipation 
through national liberation. And I think you can find some similarities in other different moments, but I, I mean, I believe that in Ojalan, the idea is basically very kind of strong. But then, the, the problem is that, or maybe, the, maybe not the problem, but the issue is that then it is not only about, like, maybe it's not very consistent with a more kind of feminist understanding of emancipation. Because ultimately, you are saying that women can also only take active roles in the public life only when they are part of a movement. If they are not a part of a movement, then their role in the public society is still very precarious. It is still vulnerable. And the organization doesn't provide any kind of narrative, any kind of cover for this kind of a woman. And I think the situation actually continues from my personal observations. And then what are the compromises? The compromises is that if you look at the PKK's regulation of the gender relations, it is so clear that there can be lots of exceptions. But I can tell you that there's a strict focus on asexuality. I mean, women are always perceived as asexual beings, which also means that any kind of romantic sexual relations among the different genders in the ranks are prohibited. That you can make the argument that, well, okay, it's a kind of an armed organization, which is basically kind of fighting, but that doesn't really make sense to any kind of a romantic relation for discipline reasons. But then, if you look at the organization like FARC, for example, or even like maybe FLMLN to a certain extent, they have different regulations. I mean, in, as far as I know, and obviously not what I said directly, but, but from what I read from the literature is that in FARC, for example, there's much more room for any kind of romantic relation. But if you look at the PKK, and again, there are some exceptions, but I know from my, maybe on like the collection of information, there is a very clear set of understanding saying that if you're a woman and if you join the ranks, then you are not supposed to engage in any kind of relationship which can basically job part as your commitment to the struggle. Mm -hmm. And you might think it's okay, kind of military necessity, but at the same time, but then it also kind of helps PKK to gain or protect a certain notion of legitimacy, but because then it can also make the argument to the fathers or the mothers that, well, your daughters joined the insurgency well, for this honorable goal, but then they don't engage in any kind of uh, extramarital affairs. And I mean, I have my own anecdotes, for example, like, I mean, there was a woman from Martin. I just basically, he, like, listened from a kind of another person, but the, 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 the anecdote is that um, that woman's daughter ended up leaving the PKK, so she came back after in prison. So the first reaction of the woman was that, not that why you basically left us and went to mountains, the first question she asked me basically, did you sleep with a man in the ranks? And as long as she basically said no, then it was acceptable because, I mean, from her perspe perspective, it was okay that she joined the insurgents, as long as she still basically kept his or her honor, from a traditional sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, so this is basically the compromise I focus on. I mean, and I will basically some, show you some other uh, numbers, but almost exclusively, you look at the woman journey PKK, they are always single. I mean, again, there are some exceptions, I, I know some, uh, uh, like there are some exceptions to the rule, but then PKK primarily recruits women from unmarried, like the like unmarried women. It rarely actively tries to recruit women who are already married. And in this sense, I mean, obviously you can make the argument that there's a strong sense or focus on motherhood in the PKK. If you think about like the Jumatis Anneli, Saturday Mothers, and then many other activists, Barush Anneli, and so on. But then ultimately, when you think about the fighters, as far as I can tell, the PKK makes a very clear boundary there. I mean, they only go after the single unmarried woman. They rarely try to basically recruit married women, but because it creates lots of problems. It basically creates lots of tensions with the society, which can actually result in backlash. And if you think about like the, the Turkish state or Turkish media perceptions of the PKK, then I mean it makes sense because then one of the big propaganda issues is that PKK exploits women and then they basically put them in this kind of a, like a sexual relationship with the high-level commanders. 
But then, yeah, this can be a kind of effective weapon in the hands of the Turkish state to basically undermine the PKK's relationship with the social base. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I just think that this is just a kind of compromise the organization needs to make, because without this compromise, it will jeopardize its primary goal, which is obviously high numbers of recruits from its civilian base, which is obviously the traditional Kurdish society. Okay, uh, but then there is one more. Okay, so let me just uh, then focus on most of the empirics. But then, I mean, somebody can tell, tell me, okay, I mean, so there's an influential study by uh, Vitania on FMLA in El Salvador, and her main argument is that when the Salvadorian women joined the FMLA in the 80s and early 1990s, the, their motivation was actually escaping from sexual violence by the hands, at the hands of the Salvadorian soldiers. And you can make the same argument for Turkey, in the sense that if there had been lots of sexual violence by the Turkish state, then, I mean, the Kurdish women basically tried to join the insurgents because the insurgents can actually protect them from the sexual violence. I, mean, I have no empirical basis to test the statement because, I mean, for many reasons and I can explain them later on, it is very difficult to collect information about these kind of issues. If nothing else, I mean, it is... I don't study this topic directly, but I know some of the people who try to ask questions and then typically they don't get many responses about sexual violence in this conflict. But I did something more indirect. And what I did is that I look at the narratives of sexual violence in the PKK's own publications. So I try to see if there's some kind of a correspondence between how PKK talk about these issues, like, and what I call the sexual violence, more about like, whether they talk about like the sexual violence by the Turkish state, threats, rape, and then whether there's a connection between the woman joining the PKK, but there's no connection. What is interesting is that there is much more talk about the sexual violence in the PKK in the early 1980s, and that magazine was published in 1982, the first issue was in January 1982, and then if you look at the first or after 1984, then you basically see much more kind of talk about the issues. But then, if you look at the period when women actually started to join the PKK, that narrative kind of disappeared, which I find interesting. I mean, I am not in a position to directly reject that alternative explanation, saying that it is more about the sexual violence by people or women end up joining the PKK, but then at least the evidence doesn't really support that argument from what I collect. I mean, if anybody can actually do a more direct kind of a test, I mean, it will be obviously much more appreciated, but I mean, I think it's still very difficult to do so. Uh, I mean, for some reason, my colors kind of disappeared, but okay, so just this kind of, kind of all, like, additional empirical evidence for my argument. So this basically shows you the village women who basically recruit from the villages, and these are from big cities, the <coughs> cities, and then Europe. I mean, it's clear that women who are coming from the villages are uh, basically undereducated. And then in my like the talk and then the paper, my focus is on most on this undereducated, mostly rural woman with very limited life opportunities. Because I think I mean, even if their understanding of this notion of patriarchy can be very limited, once the PKK developed this gender narrative, it became a it became a clear alternative in the sense that PKK talks about well, okay, your situation is not normal. There can be an alternative, and alternative is basically rather than being a mother of like 10 different children and basically replicating experience of your mother or grandmother, you can join us and basically fight for the national liberation. And this basically really appeals to the people who are basically in this category. I mean, people who are much more educated can also join for, because they care about gender equality, and they actually have much more kind of a strong ideological commitment. But at least in this talk and paper, I mostly focus on people who are more undereducated and who basically make the bulk of the fighters in PKK in any case. Um, let me skip this one because uh, it kind of like gives some additional information, but... Okay, so 
some of the colors are not visible here, but I, I mean, this is a very simple graph, but I think it also helps me a lot. It shows the average recruitment age of PKK women and men. So this is basically men, and this is women, and these are ages. And if you look at basically women or the men's average recruitment age is basically 19.5, while for women it's basically around like 17.8 or 18. Which basically means that women join the PKK on average at a very early age compared to men. And how can you explain that? You can explain it if you again focus on this notion of uh, life choices facing the undereducated woman. I mean, again, if we are basically talk about teenager uh, brides or the mothers, that if you basically reach the age of let's say 19 or 18, and if you are not educated, if you only went to like, primary school and if you did not maybe even go to school, then your only option is basically getting married. But then again, PKK doesn't really recruit married women. So the, uh, the, the option is that you can join the PKK and you can actually get less reaction from your family as long as you basically remain in the ranks. And I think this really explains why that there's a significant difference between the average recruitment age between men and women. So this was my interpretation. I mean, in my paper, I talk about like, the more kind of a substantial life stories. Probably I don't have enough time to do so, but I mean, I will be able to give you maybe more specific examples about women like, that I kind of encounter through like the, their uh, parents, uh, in most cases, it, like give examples from their life stories. But let me just go to the conclusions and... Uh, okay, yeah, so I mean, um, I, I mean, so the, one of the big purpose of this study is that, I mean, many other scholars already make the connection between gender inequality and peace and security. My own contribution is more about like gender inequality and the relationship between people's like patterns of joining the insurgency. And I mean, my argument is that without an explicit focus on the gender relations, without an explicit focus on not only the ethnic, ethnic minority <coughs> relations, but also social relations within the ethnic group, it can be hard to understand why so many women end up joining an uh, organization like PKK, knowing that they can actually get killed in the next four or five years. So this is my contribution there. But the, what about normative implications? And I, I don't always feel very confident to talk about normative implications, so my conclusion is a little bit more kind of a timid, more tentative. But on the one hand, I mean, what you see is actually interesting because maybe unlike any other insurgency, when you look at the PKK Kurdish movement case, it is not only the militants, the women militants who become who gain agency, but then you basically see many other women who become activists, who become politicians, who became mayors, who became members of the parliament, basically in the last 15 years or so. I mean, obviously there is the exception of Leila Zana, and you can talk about some of the, like, the early women from the... Uh, uh, KDP and Yekitia in Iraq, but they have a very limited number of women in any case. But ultimately, you can make argument that once large number of women end up joining the PKK, it basically opens up the way for the lots of other women who become activists in a non-violent sense. And this became kind of a lasting legacy of organization. I mean, if you look at the, the Rojava, the Syria, if you look at like the, the, the Turkey, and even maybe like to a, to a certain extent in Iran, you basically see that the women have real decision-making power within these organizations. I mean, it's not just kind of a, basically a couple of women for like show purposes, but they really have agents and they really have like a substantial kind of influence in the organizations. And it's kind of like in defiance of liberal feminism because then obviously their way of achieving that is very unconventional base. But then at the same time, from a more critical perspective, I think you can also make a distinction between agency and empowerment. And obviously it depends on how you define empowerment, but maybe coming from a more liberal tradition, you can say that empowerment is more than anything else about autonomous decision making, basically having more power over your life choices. Well, 
in this case, you always see women with the lots of public agency, but it doesn't mean that they are empowered because they still restricted certain choices. I mean, in a sense, you cannot talk about very easily about the feminism in the Kurdish society, which is completely detached from the national movement. I mean, it's difficult to achieve that. It's always basically somehow subordinate to the national movement. And then when you talk about the women who become very influential, that's also about sacrifice. I mean, you have to basically sacrifice lots of things in life to achieve these positions. And without that sacrifice for the moment, it becomes very difficult, or it becomes very difficult to talk about like Kurdish women having this autonomous power within the society. Um, but I mean, it's always a very kind of fluid situation, uh, kind of ongoing situation, and you can actually talk about, if anything else, like the huge transformations taking place in this society as a result of this, like the political violence. But I think this is basically how I basically like perceive it at the moment, like given this kind of distinction between agents and empowerment regarding these movements. So thank you for your patience. <laughs>